This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the WTF SBF episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of what has been a completely batshit week. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. There was like... Totally fucking bananas. Totally fucking bananas. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. And we have a special guest. Hello. Who are you, special guest? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, also of Slate. And I host the podcast What Next TBD. And you and I are going to be talking on What Next DVD, yeah. TBD, all about SBF, WTF. OMG. FDIC, <laughs> CZ, FTX US, Chapter 11. FML. It's, 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 it's a shit show in the world of crypto this week. So we are going to be covering the crypto shit show. We are going to be talking about Twitter, of course, because that has imploded in, in a shit show. Emily apologizes, but it was her idea. She's like, we do need to talk about this now. It's we true. are going to talk about Meta, which laid off 11,000 people, which you may not have noticed amidst all of the chaos. We have a slate plus about the Paul Allen art sale. And generally, it's just an awesome episode because Lizzie's on it. So keep on Aww. listening. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So obviously, we need to start with FTX. This has been dominating my entire week, and it is a wild story. Emily, as the kind of yes, person who's been looking lightly. at this from afar, like what what do you what do you think the big story is here? The big story is yet again, everyone was fooled by a young boy genius, Sam Bankman Fried who graced every cover of every business magazine following in the footsteps of Elizabeth Holmes, Jeffrey Skilling, and probably a lot of other fancy scammers Adam over Newman. the year. Adam haven't Newman. Fall, uh, probably some others who haven't fallen yet. Yeah. he he. The emperor had no clothes. SBF, as he was known, ran FTX, which is a crypto exchange, but also an investing firm called Alameda. And apparently, he used money that people trusted and put on FTX. He took it, customer money, as far as I understand it, took it off the exchange, used it for other stuff. And then when people wanted it back, it was gone. Well, specifically what he did was he <laughs> lent it to Alameda. He took roughly half, according to reports, he took there was roughly $16 billion that people had on the exchange. The, you know, if I put on a trade, um, you know, I need to put collateral on the exchange or just leave stuff on the exchange. He had roughly $16 billion of customer crypto, basically, on the exchange. He lent about half of that to Alameda, which is completely insane. Bad. It's bad. Bad. Regulators think that's bad. Well, if, yeah, if you okay. If you, if you were regulated, it would be illegal. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he was based in the Bahamas precisely because they didn't have any regulation over that kind of thing. And so... Um, that's just a very bad look for any exchange to lend that much money to an affiliated hedge fund. Even worse, the collateral he took for that loan was his own token, FTT, that he could just make up from thin air. And so that's an even worse look. Put those two things together, and the guy looks just way out of his depth. The weird thing is that he gave a 
an interview last year to the Odd Lots podcast, not the one everyone is talking about where he talks about black boxes and Ponzi's. And Matt, but, and Matt Levine calls the whole thing a Ponzi scheme. And, but, um, but the previous one, a few months earlier, he went into enormous detail about how it's incredibly dangerous for an exchange to lend a large amount of money to a single client because that can be the end of the exchange. He knew exactly what he was doing, but what seems to have happened is that Alameda wound up needing to borrow a whole bunch of money for two big reasons. And um, and he's like, well, there's nowhere else we can get it. We're just going to have to lend it out of FTX funds. And that was the beginning of the end. So I have a question. If he had done this and Coindesk had not published this article that, that showed kind of Alameda's balance sheet was super wonky, um, and begun what I think we can what safely say is a bank run, right? Like if that had not happened, would we know any of this and would FTX be intact? Like would it just so, be doing so, okay, quirky so it's, it's, it's stuff? It's a super interesting question because all of crypto is just based on faith. It is the ultimate faith-based community. I mean, much like money itself. But well, go- no. But, because, but governments like, are involved. Yeah, like that. governments, governments can force you to pay your taxes in their currency. And if you don't pay your taxes in their currency, they can send you to jail, right? That None of that exists in crypto. There's no actual legal need for anyone to own any crypto ever. If a Bitcoin is worth $15,000 or $20,000 or $50,000, it's only because people think it is. If they all decide we don't think there's anything there and sell it, it's going to be worth zero. There's no intrinsic value to anything in crypto. So that's the first thing, right? Like, therefore, anything that is built on crypto is inherently based on trust and faith that there is some value in here. And for a long time, there was some value in FTX. And specifically, there was a lot of value in the FTT token. And one day, there wasn't value in the FTT token, any decent exchange should be able to survive that because it's just an exchange and they don't an exchange doesn't need a lot of balance sheet and in fact the FTX US exchange could easily have survived that the FTX, because what they had the they had the reserves on hand they had some treasuries they, or yeah, what well, well no because the FTX US exchange never did this thing called rehypothecation that FTX was doing but lending customer funds out to a, to someone else the FTX US exchange never even issued FTT this exchange token. In fact, if you were in the U- if you were in the US, there was no legal way for you to buy FTT at all. So the US exchanges, because of fear of regulators, were all actually basically fine. Um, but but FTX US was tiny in comparison to FTX, the main thing in the Bahamas, and so. Yeah, basically anything in crypto, if people lose faith in it, it goes to zero. And so to answer Lizzie's question, though, like, so it, it, if not for the Coindesk piece, perhaps people wouldn't have lost faith in FTX at that moment. So, so yeah, the FTX just, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, has filed for bankruptcy. Um, its liabilities exceed its assets. The whole thing is going to be a Delaware shit show. Um, but... The precipitating events were 
there there were a few precipitating events. One was that SBF got into a big fight with CZ, who's the other big whale in the crypto space. The Binance CEO. The CEO of Binance, which is by far the biggest exchange in crypto. Binance is like 10 times bigger than FTX. So, and, and CZ had a stake in FTX because he, you know, very early on had invested in FTX. And because they were having a big fight, um, CZ wouldn't apparently give information about his wealth to um, SBF, who needed it because he needed to detail all of the wealth of his shareholders in order to get various US, US licenses. Um, FTX bought out CZ. He paid $2 billion for CZ's stake in FTX. And then he needed to find that $2 billion somewhere. And that was basically the first hmm. problem. That's where the internal lending came from? That's where some of the internal lending came from. And then the other thing he needed is he needed to borrow like $500, billion, $500 million because he, you know, there, there was this company called Voyager that went bankrupt and he kind of rescued Voyager. So he suddenly needed all of this cash. In order to get all of this cash, he wound up borrowing money and also issuing a bunch of FTT tokens, right? So a large chunk of what he paid CZ for CZ's stake in FTX was in FTT tokens. Which is just made up money. <laughs> which, money. Which was made up money. But like everything in crypto is made up. So like fine, whatever. But then what happens is CZ wakes up one morning, sees a report in Coindesk saying C FTT tokens are basically all owned by Alameda. And CZ's like, shit, that's not a good look. So he's like, I'm just going to sell these. The minute he decides to sell them, everyone else is like, oh, shit. And then, as Lizzie says, you have this bank run style situation. Yep. And, now, and the price would have plummeted. Like, it was like the price was plummeting because CZ was selling. And blah, 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 blah. Well, the, the price was plummeting because everyone was selling at that right. point. Um, but, but then um, Emily had a wonderful line a bit earlier. FTX is, what do you say? F oh, F SBS. F <laughs> so Sam Bankman-Fried, when this starts happening, he's like, don't worry. Everyone's going to get their money. My first priority is you, the customer. And then, you know, n n people aren't getting their money. He's filed for bankruptcy. And I said, SBF is no FDIC. And that's the that's why in the U.S. we don't we don't have bank runs at regular banks. People, you're, you put your money in a bank. It says FDIC in a little placard. And you know, whatever happens to the and, bank, and, you'll and, get your money back. And more to the point, SBF is no SIPC either, right? Like when... Um, we don't know what that is. When we, MF Global, Lizzie probably knows what. It so is. there are very, very, <laughs> very, there are very close um, parallels between what happened to FTX and what happened to MF Global. Do you remember MF Global? That was John Corzine's little investment bank. I don't really oh, yeah. remember. You talk about MF God, Global. We've been a through lot. so <laughs> we've been through so many collapses. Like I'm like, which one is that? And, yeah, I don't and, know and, what and MF Global was was brought down by basically the same thing, which was rehypothecating customer funds and. In it's a very fancy case, word. What, what does that mean in English? It basically means lending them out to someone else and not keeping them, um, you know. You're not supposed to mess with the box, money. In a lockbox, as Al Gore would put it. But the um, so anyway, so John Corzine or MF Global was messing around with customer funds, and that was bad and wrong. But ultimately, MF Global's investors were protected because there is SIPC insurance, another which is basically mm. the securities, securities industry version of the yeah. FDIC. Securities investments. Protection corporation. Something, something. Is that why yeah. my, well, this may be too in the weeds, but is that why my 401k money is also safe? Like if Fidelity goes out of business? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 
okay, so my 401k money is safe and my money money is safe because it's FDIC insured. So, but if I put my money in crypto, it is not safe. Exactly. I mean, well, you could well, buy the dip right now. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, well, I mean, to insane. be fair, and and you know, I'm going to come out and say this, and it's going to come up and blow in my blow up in my face because everything is moving so fast. To be fair, it seems as though Americans with crypto are, are safe, and they still manage to keep their crypto. It was only the people who were dealing with like these offshore Bahamas exchanges who stand to lose a bunch of their crypto. Because the Coinbase CEO came out in a blog post, or I read, I was reading something where he said, "When you give us your money, we put it away and we keep it for you, one for one, and you can right. get it back." Like they're not, they're not doing what a bank does, which is they take your, the bank takes your money and yep. goes and lends, and lends it. but right. they, but it's and but it's also like lending long or mm-hmm. you know. So so like there, there and it are, has the back step of regulation, right? It's got to keep that tier one capital on hand. The the coin the Coinbase situation is a bit complicated because there are two different ways you can hold money at Coinbase. <laughs> one is where. They just custody your crypto for you. Mm-hmm. And the other one is where you have an account at Coinbase with crypto in it. Okay. And one of them, it is absolutely undeniably your crypto and you own it. And the other one, it is actually a Coinbase liability to you. But he is right that all of that crypto is kept in you know, a, a walled off garden, as it were, you know, for your on your behalf and that even if Coinbase went under, you should be able to grab it. It's just there's never been a bankruptcy where that has been tested, so we don't know for sure. But just to put things in perspective, Coinbase has roughly $100 billion worth of crypto, just people holding their crypto on Coinbase. Okay. FTX was not a custodian in that sense. FTX, as we said, had about $16 billion, but that was all crypto that was being traded. There was, you know, people were going long and short and yield farming and all the rest of it. The... um. The big place where people keep their crypto is Coinbase. It's probably the biggest in the world. And yeah, that's American. It's regulated. It's listed on the stock exchange. And it seems relatively safe. Obviously, the crypto can go down in value. But if you have one Bitcoin today, you'll probably have one Bitcoin tomorrow. And do you think that fact about Coinbase keeps crypto having some kind of value? Like, even though what's happening with SBF is very destabilizing to crypto overall, there are sort of these things that make put a floor in place that means crypto will still, could still, should still have value? Well, one of the problems is that because everyone is so scared of American regulators, you know, they do things like set up separate exchanges like Binance US and FDX US and that kind of thing. And the result of that is that 95% of all of the crypto activity in the world happens offshore. It does not uh, happen in the United States. This is where I have a question about Sam Bankman-Fried. So Sam Bankman-Fried spent a lot of time lobbying people in Washington, testifying in, in front of Congress, like making friends, asking for regulation of crypto. What was he doing? Was this like an elaborate feint to you know, play some regulatory arbitrage and say, we want the CFTC to regulate us because they won't be as intense as the SEC. Or like, what Like what was he so doing this is, there? This is every single crypto CEO. Like CZ is, always says the same thing. If you ask him, I've interviewed him a few times, and he always says, I want clear regulation. There is literally no crypto CEO in the world who doesn't come out on a regular basis and right. say, we want clear regulation. Just show us the rules and write them down and then we can follow them. But right now there's no rules and so we don't know what we're doing. And it's a fair point. 
Um, and obviously, you know, America is where all, you know, a huge amount of money is, is where a huge, where very kind of, where regulators with global reach um, live. It's where, by the way, FTX is filing for bankruptcy, even though FTX is a Bahamas-based organization. Yeah, so, that they, can, for so they can get American bankruptcy protection? It's, they get, they're filing like, for bankruptcy like in Delaware. Because it's better for them? Yeah, well, well also because as far, like we did a little bit of work on this Axios on Thursday. Um, turns out the the Bahamas doesn't actually have a bankruptcy regime. Hmm. All you can do in the ba- in the Bahamas is just liquidate yourself. In the yeah, so the, so so America looks great in that <laughs> exactly. respect. So so it, you know the entire crypto world would really quite love it if there were clear rules in America. Um, no one can really come to any agreement on what those clear rules should look like. The crypto world wants a bunch of like. You're special, so we're going to make special rules just for you kind of rules. While, mm. you know, the Warren Buffetts and Jamie Dimons of the world are saying, like, why can't they just play by the same rules that the rest of us yeah. play by? It gets very complicated very quickly. But, yeah, I mean, in principle, no one likes – I mean, certainly SBF didn't like the idea that Americans couldn't legally access the FTX exchange. Like, he wasn't happy about that. But what the fundamental question, I feel I must repeat Lizzie's question is, this guy was doing shady stuff and at the same time was saying, please regulate me. So you're saying, yeah, that's just what everyone says. But he wasn't saying, please catch me doing shady stuff. Well, I mean, according to him, he he didn't realize how much <laughs> risk he was taking because he couldn't read his bank statements properly. And so he didn't realize how many loans he had outstanding. What? Um, Come yeah. on, man. I mean, like, He's only 30. <laughs> okay, but but if a, if, a, if Ian Allison from CoinDesk can read your bank statements properly, you can too. One would think, um, but yeah, I the the thing that I think you can say about Jeff Skilling, Adam Newman, SBF, basically all of them, with the possible exception of Elizabeth Holmes, is that they believed in themselves. I do, I'm I'm almost certain that SBF didn't think he was doing bad things when he was doing the bad things, and he did say like at the end he's like oh shit I made a big error of judgment like the the big and the big error of judgment by the way was quite recent when he made that big <laughs> loan from FTX to Alameda, um, which wound up blowing up the whole company and turns out to have been yeah an error of judgment you could say that when your net worth Whoopsies. goes from thirty two billion to zero but um but yeah I. You know, I, I just think that in terms of chronology, most of what he was saying about, like, please regulate me predates the ah. chaos of Three Hours Capital, Voyager, buying out CZ and all of the kind of stuff that ended up taking down FTX. Right. So I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to pose it anyway. So you you, you mentioned the big banks. Um, a lot of the big banks have been dabbling in crypto, right? They've been getting, like, tiny little bits of exposure, um, are any of them exposed to this? And again, this is where U.S. regulation turns out to have been amazing because they're only they're only playing around with U.S. crypto. That, well, it's not just that they're barely even playing around with U.S. Right. crypto. Like the U.S. banks are so closely regulated, and their compliance officers are so yeah. cautious that the minute anyone at the U.S. bank says. We should get into crypto. The compliance officer kind of looks at them and raises an eyebrow, and they're like, yeah, never mind. So they don't. And so far, as far as I can tell, and it's a little bit early to say this because things are moving very fast. Yeah. But so far, 
you know, this is absolutely massive in the crypto world. It is impossible to overstate how much the bankruptcy of FTX is just blown a hole. Right this is in not Terra and Luna. World. This is much, much, much bigger. Much, much bigger. This is the biggest and most consequential, you know, implosion since 2014 in the crypto world. Um, when Mount Gox suddenly disappeared overnight. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but like so far, I have seen basically zero real world repercussions to this. And I think that. Well, except for people who lost a lot of money. Well, okay. But here, here's my who question Who lost money? I tweeted and hmm. see if anyone responded. It's an interesting question. I don't. Right? I don't like, think. Like, I don't even think any real people lost money here, right? Not directly. Like obviously, if insofar as you own Bitcoin and Bitcoin has gone down, you know, you have less money. But as I say, those sixteen billion dollars that was on FTX was like professional crypto hedge fund types. It wasn't normal saver folks. It wasn't normal it wasn't saver someone folks. Who was like, I would like to buy point zero zero one right. bitcoins. And if you do, if you do say that, yeah, you keep it on on Coinbase right. and. Um, and it certainly, and FTX wasn't out there saying like we are going to pay twenty percent interest on stable coins like Coinbase, mm -hmm. like like Celsius was, right? Um, so number one, it's no Americans, but number two, like it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of a business. It was an exchange. It wasn't a place where people kept their money. So I don't think there are that many losers here beyond just the equity investors in SPF. And, and, all the, and all the effective altruism people who are being funded by him. <laughs> yeah. and, and, Do they yeah. have to give back their countryside manor house is it's, the thing that I It's a very asking. good question. Will McCaskill resigned from the FTX Founders Will McCaskill, Fund? Will Oxford whatever. professor, you know, effective EA. altruism, profit. Um, do, do, have we ever talked about effective altruism? I think people maybe know we what have a bit. But, like, okay. but yeah, so this is definitely bad for effective altruism because like it's, it's far from clear that SBF for all of his grand talk about effective altruism. Which is what? Which really, is it? Really, well, I mean, we'll put that to one side for one minute. I but can't like, it's, you know, it's it's like this weird kind of utilitarian, long-termist. Anyway, put that to one side. He he did have a fund. The fund said that it had made $160 million in commitments, which is like, I don't know, I reckon FTX spent more than that on it naming rights from Miami Sports Arena. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not even clear how many of those commitments were actually funded. So I don't think he actually gave very much money away. And yeah, so this is a definitely a big black eye for this movement, which we can have a whole other conversation about at some point. Okay. And the other losers would be the F... I don't know how many FTX employees or Alameda employees Very there were, few. But they, they're all losers. Clearly yeah. not a lot in risk management. No, I mean, like, that's one of the... It's not a big like, department there. Th there was, like, a period of 24 hours where people thought that Binance was going to buy FTX. Mm -hmm. And Binance has, like, 4,000 employees or whatever, and they come in to do due diligence, and they realize that FTX has, like, 70 employees, and they're like, you can't do that. Like, you, you know, you need more employees to do all of the risk management and compliance and everything, and they, they wound up walking away very yeah, quickly. Yeah, they took a quick look under the hood and were like, absolutely not. Right. So, yeah, FTX, were, there were very few employees. Which also contributed yeah. to this. There were employees who, if you were an employee at FTX, you're, you know, you're a loser. If you are an equity investor in FTX, which would include the employees, but also people like Sequoia, you lose whatever you invested. But that's just the VC game. Yeah. yeah, that actually is my favorite part of this whole story is that Sequoia had this glowing profile of SBF on their website and they took it down. 14,000 words of hagiography. It was the They just tried to pretend thing. it wasn't there. But the, the, also the weirdest thing. <laughs> Wayback Machine can come for you, my friends. The weirdest thing was that 
apparently, this is what the information reported, SBF managed to find like half a billion dollars to invest in Sequoia and other VCs. Yeah. And where that came from, I have no idea. So this guy's broke now. He could just go home, live with his parents or something. Uh, well, they Bloomberg still well. reckons he's down to his last $960 million or something. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, so he had some real money, well, we not don't just know. FTT. We really don't know. No one has a clue. He has not. A whole bunch of different entities filed for bankruptcy on Friday. There was FTX and FTX US and Alameda. I don't know. But SBF personally did not. So we we don't really know what's will, going will on. Will we learn any of this now that it looks like a whole bunch of, of federal regulators are investigating? Good well, question. so apparently federal regulators have been investigating FTX US Ooh. for months now. Mm. Um, and they were worried about various shenanigans going on at FTX US, but probably not like super, super consequential ones that could bring down the entire company. But yeah, there's no doubt that now the bankruptcy is happening in the US and FTX US has filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, the US regulators are going to be keeping an eye on this for sure. I think SBF should go back, live with his parents, who I think are professors or something. At Stanford Law. Apparently he can just go hang out with his, some PC. I mean, like, maybe he should not, actually, because that is, like, the opening chapter in the SBF comeback story. It's well, like he apparently, up and down this is Sand Hill Road. One, of the, novel, weird, honestly, one of the weird things little... is that um, <laughs> SBF's dad was working for FTX. Come on. <laughs> shaking my head. Just shaking, shaking my, my head. head. Um, but we should change subject completely and talk about like a wunderkind who raised billions of dollars to create a tech company and then everything started going horribly wrong, but no one could control him because he had complete control of the company. Um, yes. How's Mark Zuckerberg doing? I mean, he's doing better than some other boy geniuses that I know. <laughs> But yeah, this week, for the first time, F Facebook, which is now called Meta, which Felix won't really let us say, but we're going to say it. Meta did, a, <laughs> did layoffs, let go of about 11,000 employees, which I think is like 13% of the, of the company's staff. Um, and my LinkedIn, I, I don't know if you guys look at LinkedIn, but I do. It's just flooded with former Meta employees saying, like, I was laid off today. Please help. Emily, Emily is a big fan of looking at LinkedIn. Ne LinkedIn, never more than recently now that all of the job postings oh, have yeah. salary ranges. We could talk about that some other time. That's a good law. <laughs> well, right now, LinkedIn is flooded with these former meta employees who, I mean, those jobs were cushy jobs. According to a story that Felix shared with us, a lot of projects that Facebook started and abandoned never got rid of the staff behind the project. So a lot of people were just kind of like floating around the company, not really doing anything, kind of like that Silicon Valley the early season of Silicon Valley where the guy works at the the fake Google company oh, yeah. and his project gets killed and he just like sits on the roof all day and like drinks big sodas and stuff. I had I know a lot of people that got laid off. I'm I don't mean to disparage 11,000 people. A lot of them were doing work, real work, but um Meta had done a lot of overhiring and finally kind of Well, they also hired what 30,000 people during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They did a huge expansion mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. Yes. Because it seemed like things were going gangbusters for them. Well, I mean, this is this is my I mean, theory. We're going gangbusters. I, I have a very um basic theory for tech industry employment, which is that when your stock is going up and the stock market is rewarding you for hiring people and growing you hire people and grow. And when your stock is going down and the stock market is saying that it is worried about your costs and you should fire people, then you fire people. 
Yeah. And and they had never had to do that before, fire people. No. This is like their first big layoff. I mean, I, I said this before we came into the studio, but Mark Zuckerberg has got to be extremely psyched that FTX blew up this mm. week and that Twitter is in some sort of Death absolutely banana spiral because this is the third biggest story in tech. And otherwise, it would have absolutely dominated the tech news. And it's oh, not. Yeah. And tech, I mean, uh, there's this site layoffs.fyi that I follow and they track layoffs in tech and this month we're talking on November 11th there's already been like 22,000 people laid off in tech Half Stripe of, Lyft uh-huh. Stripe Lyft Twitter of course Twitter, you of just course. mentioned yep. um, uh, Redfin yeah. which is tech real estate um, but yeah, Facebook is about half of the layoffs, and it's and really Amazon's more... in a hiring freeze, and I feel like yeah, that, and that, yeah, they, I feel like been, Andy Jassy's like mm-hmm. they've been leaking stuff to the Wall Street Journal saying like you know our devices unit lost five billion dollars a year, and we're going to have to like so yeah, a bunch of people are firing people. But <laughs> my question for you, Lizzie, is to what degree is the eleven thousand people who got laid off at Meta this week, which is a lot of people? Um, how to what degree is that just a function of this pivot to the metaverse? Like, I feel like he is spending so much money on the metaverse, it is going nowhere. Everyone seems to agree that it's a complete black hole, he's never going to make a return on it. That is why the stock imploded. Like, yes. Facebook's mm-hmm. revenues have been more or less flat, its stock is down 80%. Um, if his stock, you know, if he hadn't done that and the stock hadn't imploded by 80%, would you have done these layoffs? So, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna say two different things. Um, and, and I should admit that I'm cribbing in part from Jeff Horwitz from the Wall Street Journal, who I had a long conversation about this with. Um, certainly employees think that that is what is going on. They are mad that, you know, Mark is super into VR with no legs, although I guess they got legs now. They got fake legs. They got fake. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, I... I and so they think, like, he took a flyer on this crazy bet, and we're all suffering for it. Yeah. I also think they overhired during the pandemic, and 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 he sort of took responsibility for that. Um, and I think that they are in this moment of, like, oh, is, is there some sort of not – I'm not going to say recession, but, like – troubled time ahead are right. there troubled times ahead so i think there are like these multiple factors that are do, coming do at you the same think time. that facebook is particularly exposed to for lack of a wet better word like u.s gdp growth is that a big thing for facebook no i think what's happening is that facebook the the social media company is actually fine like right. they they make money that division's doing fine but they have kind of maxed out at U.S. user growth, right? right? So they are more affected by other countries having big yikes moments than the U.S. having big mm. yikes moments. I mean, I think in their in their Facebook division, right? Like, that's where they're trying to grow users. But I, I think they have obviously taken some big expensive bets on stuff that they have said we don't expect to pay off in the in the near term we expect it to maybe pay off in a decade but investors are like mm, no we would like our money now thank you very much they i mean that nothing they've done has been a success like facebook is a success the, everything uh, that's successful the they only... own instagram is a success but, but everything are, else is something they those are acquisition well right. i mean well instagram was an acquisition right yeah i'm the saying only, their only successful things are acquisitions the only WhatsApp thing and instagram. the only th- 
product that Mark Zuckerberg had made that was, was, that was a success, really the stories, which was copied from um, Snapchat. Yeah. And and Reels is a TikTok clone. Yeah, but Reels isn't actually successful. No, it's Reels is where people like me, middle-aged moms, see TikToks that were cool two weeks ago. Yeah. Do you see ads on Reels? <sighs> I can't remember. Because but I feel also, like I've I feel been like hacked, TikTok... so like my, I can't think about <laughs> yeah. anything other yeah. than my. But hackers. I feel like I feel like TikTok has done a pretty good job of getting a fuck ton of ad revenue. Yeah. Yes. And that Reels kind of hasn't even though instagram is just this advertising giant it's where everyone yes. wants to ad- advertise and and apparently elon musk buys stuff on instagram as he told us and, and like yeah employees. and we should probably just mention you know that there's this massive sound of like the entire ad world leaving twitter on mass and they're probably going to want to just take that to facebook but the other thing that is happening and i should mention this and this is again something that that jeff and i talked about a lot has changed in the online ad world since Apple started putting in app tracking right. transparency. So, this so is, Apple yeah, this pulled is, the rug right. out of online advertising, well, and yeah, that's how I mean, sort yeah, of. But yes that's how no. Facebook made a lot of its money. So, Apple made this big change about user tracking. Mm-hmm. Every single m- m- online media company said, this is going to be terrible, don't do this, and they, they, there was this huge parade of horribles, it's all going to be bad for us, it's going to be bad for the entire industry. It happened, and it turned out to be basically a complete nothing burger for everyone except for Facebook. Yep. Facebook, for whatever reason, and literally no one understands this, Facebook was hurt really, really hard by it. And but- why Facebook was incapable of dealing with it when everyone else seemed to deal with it fine, no one understands. So I think actually an interesting thing to do, and in the future, here's a good story for you guys, uh, is to compare what happened to Facebook and Google when this change happened, right? right? Because those two together are, what, half of the online ad market? More. More, two-thirds? I mean, it's something absurd. And so they were both hugely dependent on on online advertising, and then kind of what did this change do to each company? I don't know. Maybe Facebook just like... Yeah, no, no, we do know. We like, do know, we, like Google, knows, I don't know. Google kind of blinked and said and shrugged and went on with its life and its revenues were barely affected. Facebook got really hurt. So yeah. wait, just to back up, as if I'm remembering this, because I remember talking about it with Stacey. Basically, this is the, the feature on my iPhone where it says, do you want to be tracked by Facebook, Google, whatever? Right. When also, you are not on our <clears throat> app. Like, it's pretty yeah. obvious what would not, it's not obvious, but I would think everybody hates Facebook, so they say no. And right. for Google, they're like, oh, it's fine. I'm on Google Maps. It's no, no, that's not no? that. It's, it's not, not? No, the point is that everyone just says no to everything. Oh, everyone says mm-hmm. no to everything, mm-hmm. yet. And, and yet Google still manages to sell ads despite that, and Facebook doesn't. Oh, that is quite yeah. a puzzle. Yeah. We should figure it out. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're going to talk about Elon and fake brands. Aw, um, fine. Fine. I mean, it was your idea, Emily. Yeah, because listen, it was all theoretical before. The 80 other times we talked about Elon Musk buying Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it was like theoretical deal talk, and we talked about like the bankers and the loans and the money. And like, I'll be honest, like I didn't care that much, and I was annoyed by it. But now it's affecting me, Felix, and I'm upset. Like, Twitter is a mess. This week has been a mess. Twitter, every day, every minute, Elon Musk is saying something that contradicts what he said, you know, the hour before. And it's a total mess. He fired half 
of the Twitter staff. Then he said, oops, we fired some people that probably should come back. All the people who worked on security for the site, which is really important because Twitter, I mean, you just tap it and it's a mess and the and the spam and the scammers come running. The people who handle security are gone. The people who work with advertisers are gone. Advertisers are oh, gone. Are gone. <laughs> when I look at my feed, it's all like the weirdest ads I've ever seen. It's like looking at, I don't know, some like sixth-rate news site or something. And then he tried to sell blue check verification for $8. Without verifying who Without you were. verifying who, who they were. And obviously that's all going to be a mess. And it was quickly a mess. As Lizzie was saying, a bunch of people are pretending – pretended to be companies. They bought the $8 check and they're like, I'm Eli Lilly and insulin is free. I like, I have been, oh, just so wait, so then losing my mind at the fake brand treats. Like we have overthrown the government of Brazil. (laughs) 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 And now, yeah, there's like the, the, the fake George W. Bush account, the fake, a second Tesla has hit the world trade center. (laughs) Oh my God. From Tesla real. They also had a fake Pope. I mean... A fake Jesus. A fake Pepsi that just tweeted, Coke is better. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so this was... Felicity-owned slaves by American Girl. So then they quickly had to be like, okay, well, we'll sell the check marks, but then we'll put a little official on on the real blue verified check marks. And you're like, guys, that was what the check... Anyway, you're okay. You're going to do that. <laughs> that okay. lasted what six hours? Like, I know. I had a conversation with Senator Chris Murphy, and he was like, "So I had one check mark, and then another one, and then that one went away." He's like, "I don't know, dude's a senator. Come on, he really is messing it up." And and oh, and then and then the the biggest piece of all is that the entire like legal and compliance team quit on mass the day before they had to certify that Twitter was in compliance with its FTC consent decree, because it clearly isn't. If you read the <laughs> FTC con- consent decree, it is absolutely obvious that like, if you roll out a new product, you need to have done all of this work on making sure that it's safe and blah, blah, blah. And Elon, of course, being Elon, has done none of that. There's quotes from his lawyer basically saying, Elon isn't scared of the SEC and he builds rockets. He's not scared <laughs> of the, the FTC. FTC. I- and But like... <laughs> The FTC, meanwhile, is tweeting out, um, excuse me, we are watching this very carefully and we take this stuff very clearly, very, very seriously, and no one is above the law. And the difference between the F- FTC and the SEC is that the FTC can send you to jail. Really? Yes. Mm. That seems, I pray for you know, that. significant. Um, can I just say this is like one of my favorites? This is actually Elon Musk. Re- really for real, Elon Musk. <laughs> How many Go- check marks are you sure? Going forward, accounts engaged in parody must include parody in their name just not in bio and somebody <laughs> tweeted like surreal substitute teacher losing control of class vibe <laughs> <laughs> just like everything i'm sorry well, because- like lots of people have lost their jobs yeah. Yeah. people have lost a way to communicate like dissidents in saudi arabia i am worried about because the saudis now have the second largest stake in twitter um but like the dunking is hilarious. Yeah, no, so, so basically, Kathy Griffin and Manu Sardia of you know yep. Friend of the Pod and all of these people changed their name to Elon Musk and then got banned because. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, another thing which just like you know oh. this has been the mother of all shit shows. But one of the other things that happened along the way was that there was a report that anyone who invested more than two hundred and fifty million dollars in Twitter, which would include 
the Saudi government, now gets full access to the Twitter firehose, which is every single thing that everyone that has ever tweeted. real bad. Tweeted, which seems really bad. I mean, that's what I was talking to Chris Murphy about, because right. he was like, mm, this should have a CFIUS review. Should I delete my account? I like, should I delete my direct, all my, like, direct messages? Because I've done, like, reporting on Twitter, you know. Yeah, probably the Saudis can see that. Probably right? the Sa- I mean, but I mean, also, but also, like, I don't reporting. think it matters. I think they know anyway, right? Like, I don't, I don't think tweeting your, deleting your DMs is going to make a difference. Or deleting my account either. It's all there No, forever. it's there. Is Twitter, look, is this, is he breaking it permanently? That's my question. I don't question. know. So... If it goes into bankruptcy, will some lovely person buy it? So, like, there is there is a plan. My friend Rick Webb has this idea that like, what he wants to do is just someone should just buy Twitter for like a dollar, put him in charge, and he's going to be like, I am not going to grow revenues. I am not going to do anything. I am just going to shore up the infrastructure, make sure that it works, make sure that it's safe, With what make money? sure that you're in compliance. Twitter has four billion dollars in the bank. In cash. In cash. So what's Elon doing going out charging people eight bucks a pop? Twi- like, I mean, I, like I think they Elon, I think they rolled Elon that back. Elon keeps on talking about how the last hour. You know, <laughs> Elon keeps on talking about negative cash flows and how it's losing four million dollars a day or something. If you're losing four million dollars a day, it still takes a while to get through four billion dollars. But more to the point, Twitter only has negative cash flows because he loaded it up with mm. you know thirteen billion dollars of debt. Right, they have like a, a billion bucks in debt service a year. So if you do of. if you do a debt for equity swap. And then, like, turn all that debt into equity in, like, new Twitter. Put, like, a very boring CEO in charge who's not trying to grow it, not trying to turn it into, a, you know, the biggest company in the world or a super app or a banking app or a savings account app, whatever it is that Elon wants, and just tries to make it into a Twitter that works. And then, in a couple years' time, when you have a Twitter that works, then you start building on that. Like I volunteer to be CEO. Exactly. I, mean, I don't know anything about <laughs> running... A company, but you know what? I could I could do a better job. I wouldn't be tweeting through it. Literally, which uh, seems to be bad. Yeah, literally, you could have a black a bag of flour as CEO <laughs> and would do a better job than Elon Musk. Although he claims that traffic is up to Twitter because everyone yeah, wants because, to watch the car. Everyone is just crash, like refresh, yeah. refresh, <laughs> refresh. I think I'm just putting it out there that the government should take control of Twitter and it should be like NPR or PBS or something. Okay, hold yeah, on. Yeah, and then Time. you, you put Don't ruin NPR for me, please. Okay, big timeout. The government, the government has one cent on the dollar. I believe this is a correct. I might be getting that wrong. But it's like a tiny, 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 tiny amount of money that they put into NPR. I, I just want to okay. dispel the okay. notion that it Thank is you. owned by the government. As a yes. former Thank NPR you. employee and a former Minnesota Public Radio no. employee, but it should be very a- important no, but, to note. But Emily, Emily says NPR. She, she, she just meant BBC, didn't you? That's what you meant. BBC. I want it to be a nonprofit. The government. It be a nonprofit, but she's not owned by the government. Okay. To be clear. So- Someone but needs I, to but, step but then, in. I think, Emily, that's, I think that's a myth. But the then right Emily, Emily said owned by I the government. She... And my original, well, this is on 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 the Axios Slack. And she's like, it should just be owned by the government. And I was like, which <laughs> government? I vote for Belgium. And mm, and Emily's okay. like, why? What you know? And so I'm like, but clearly you don't want the American government in charge because the no. American government is a shit show. The, I, the Belgian government, well, the Belgian on. government barely exists. This is why you want the Belgian government to do it because, like, it's basically the government equivalent of a bag of flour. Listen to me. <laughs> we just had we a whole a segment. In Belgium. 
We just had a whole segment, Felix, in which you explained why people in the U.S. were um, firewalled from the horror of the FTX shit show because of the government regulation at play. So to say the U.S. government is a shit show is inaccurate, purely based on what you told us nary 10 minutes ago. Well, no, the reason... Nary. <laughs> nary. The, the reason why everyone in the U.S. was protected from the crypto implosion was not because the government knows what it's doing, but because the government doesn't know what it's doing. And everyone is acting like a complete chaos monkey and suing people who try to follow the rules and not suing people who don't try to follow the rules. And everyone's just like trying to stay well away and just keep their head down and do absolutely nothing that could be remotely interesting. And that's why they do everything offshore. So like, that's not like sensible regulation. That's just being completely batshit. Hmm. I don't know. I think Twitter should be owned by either a nonprofit entity or the government. Or, or Belgium. Of Belt Fine of Belgium. <laughs> me. It, it should no be owned offense. by me. Or Lizzie. Or Lizzie. Let's I just guess. give it to Lizzie. Although, I don't know. I feel like being a CEO, Lizzie could turn you into some megalomaniac. No, you because don't know. I promise to surround myself with people who tell me I'm being a dumb dumb. No, no, but so I, you'll I think, hire Felix then? I think seriously. Yeah. I would hire my husband who'd be like, can you practice the breathing that we teach our toddler? <laughs> You're being impatient right now. Let's all take a deep breath. <laughs> I, I, I do think, you know, in some glorious ideal world, it would just wind up getting given to like the Wikimedia Foundation or Fine. something like that. Great. But and then Twitter would ask you for $5 exactly. every time you open the <laughs> exactly. app. Exactly. And that that's would be fine. fine. Yeah. Be like, please, <laughs> please give us the money. I mean, that's what Twitter is was for a while when Elon was asking us for $8. That's true. So yeah. let's go. Let's go. All right. Let's, let's do a numbers round. Um, <laughs> Lizzie. We have a numbers round every week on Slate Money. I am prepared for that. (laughs) Pick a number, any number, and just tell us what that number is. I will give you a minute. I'm going to start with Emily. Okay. I have this number, and it's silly. And last night I was telling my husband the number, and then he was like, why is this interesting? And I was like, I'm not sure. But I'm just going to go with it. Okay. Okay. The number is 40. And that is the number of rotisserie chickens that a man named Alexander Tominsky ate over a 40-day period in One Philadelphia. Per day? One rotisserie chicken per day. Okay. For reasons of, I don't know, to yeah. entertain people purely. Because it's Philly, I think, is the answer that you're looking for. Yeah, and he's called the Philadelphia Chicken Man. And, um, yeah, originally he was going to eat the chicken for only 30 days, but then a miracle happened and the chicken lasted for 40 days. I don't know. I'm just making that up. And (laughs) he just, he extended it and now he doesn't want to eat rotisserie chicken ever again. And I just want to say that I think rotisserie chicken is like one of the marvels of modern capitalism and grocery stores, but that, again, my husband was still like, why is this interesting? And I'm like, but it's great. Rotisserie chicken. That's all I have. Okay, so I I love the economics (laughs) of rotisserie chicken are absolutely fascinating because, as we all know, know. a rotisserie chicken, which is cooked and has a bunch of labor in it, costs less than a raw chicken that is uncooked and has much less labor in it. And so everyone's like, how? (laughs) Yeah. And and, my head exploding. And you get the same thing. I'm not sure that's true at Union Market. Yeah, I'm almost positive it is true at Union Market. It's always true. Having had both at Union Market. Um, The uh, equivalent to that is the Grand Central Oyster Bar, where six oysters Rockefeller 
cost less than oh, six yeah. oysters. Oh, yeah. Okay, because so those weird. were like the questionable oysters. But they decided the, to cook them. But that's the same <laughs> as the chicken. They take the chicken that's about to go off. They do? And they turn it into rotisserie. Are you sure about that? Yeah, that's why it's cheaper. I don't want to. No, oh. Felix, you're ruining it. Oh, I thought it was Felix. cheaper because it was like a lost leader, like for a Costco. That's why they never raise the price of their chicken. No, no, it's because it's a way of using up the chickens that you would otherwise need to throw away because. Are you, you sure? Yes. They're always smaller. Oh, you're not too. just making this up. I am not making this up. But can we also say that the rotisserie oh. chicken is more delicious than the chicken you make at home nine yes. times out of you, ten? You can That's totally an say acknowledged that. fact, yes. right? Yeah. I, I got to say, got to put in a plug for Samin Nosrat's. Oh yeah, I brine. do that. That mm-hmm. thing is amazing. But I made I that know. one. It was good. I don't know rotisserie. Anyway, that's my number. Okay, do you got one now? Uh, now I, I have. I got one. <laughs> you right. got um, one. My number is one, as in the first of October, because my household has been sick since then. <laughs> and and this actually has a, a story, like a news story attached to it, which is this kind of staggering. Um, explosion in illnesses among young children right now. Is this RSV or yep, whatever it's called? Yep, yep. Respiratory syncytial virus. Um, we did not have RSV, although I, I know a couple people, Bess Levin from Vanity Fair, her daughter had RSV. She came on my show to talk about it. Um, RSV sucks. Uh, colds, enterovirus, rhinovirus, obviously COVID, the flu. So there's this huge surge because there were all these kids who did not have, like, you know, regular old normal interactions the past two years. And now they're doing that. And we've dropped all our our COVID protections. And they're all sick. It's the new not normal. I'm all sick. I have been sick since October 1st. I, I don't know if I should have come in today to see you. Sorry, man. I mean, I'm not really sick anymore. Now I just have, like, a sort of what sounds like a smoker's cough. Okay. All right. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so no, calling it the, the triple demic. No, it's, it's triple demic. Yeah, and and, and was... hospitals are like right. hugely pediatric ERs, pediatric um, urgent cares are like hugely overwhelmed. Yeah, and it's it is a, it is a kind of COVID rebound, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I'm going to tease the slate plus. Um, my number is six point two percent, which is the average compound annual growth rate that you saw on the paintings that mm. Paul Allen sold that he had bought previously at auction. Some beautiful paintings. Um, there were some amazing paintings, and we're going to talk about these paintings on Slate Plus, and it was an amazing sale, which got like $1.6 billion. And we'll talk about this on Slate Plus, but like, what's super fascinating is this guy was an amazing art collector. He had the best art in the world. He managed, the Christie's managed to pull together this incredible sale. Everyone came to it. Everyone overpaid. And even after all of that, at the best possible time to sell, he still underperformed the stock market. So do not listen to anyone hmm. who tells you that art can outperform stocks. That's my, that's my lesson there. Well, we'll talk about it more in the plus. I we'll know. talk about it more in the plus. I have questions about that. For Stay the, um, for the rest of us, you know, we plebs who don't subscribe to Slate Plus, I think that's it for Slate Money this week. Lizzie, you came on at I like did. incredibly short notice. You are amazing. We love you. Thank now you. Now come on, on my podcast. Now Felix. I'll come on your podcast. It's it's a you know mutual podcasting society right here. Very important. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing, and yeah, we'll be back next week with more Slate Money.
was just realizing, like, Paul Allen, Microsoft co-founder, nice legacy, nice art. Like, in a, in a world where we're talking about these terrible mm-hmm. tech CEOs, it's like, maybe Paul Allen was... Not so bad. And he's not creepy, it's nice right? Art. Like, do we know? Is he cre- I don't think... He died in 2018 before oh. Me Too, so we he don't know. He couldn't get Me too Yeah, so... But, yeah, no, so Paul Allen was famous for building that weird Frank Gehry music yeah. thing in Seattle, oh. which I can't really stand, to be honest. But it turns out that he also had one of the most amazing art collections in the world. And... Then his estate basically said, we're going to sell a huge chunk of this art collection and give all the money to unspecified charity. Um, I really want to know what charity it goes to. I hope it's not just some perpetual foundation that's actually going to charity. But... um, Effective altruism. (laughs) Yeah, just like Will McCaskill can move over to, um, to, to the Allen estate. But yeah, so it turns out he had... Five paintings that sold for over $100 million, which used to be a big deal. Um, The whole show was just astonishingly high quality. He got the whole art world, got really excited about it. Everyone poured in and really started like overbidding. And it seems like this is the one part of the world, like with the stock market going down and the bond market going down and the crypto market going down and the housing market going down and the car market going down. Everything's going down, but the art market is like, at its peak right now. Yeah, what's that about? I was trying to, I think I had one note for you on this, which was like, (laughs) is there no recession? Like, why are people spending lots of money on this Is it an alternative investment thing? Is it a hedge? Is it it an uncorrelated asset? It isn't. Well, it's clearly an uncorrelated (laughs) asset because it's going up when everything else is going down. But you are saying, I, I read a piece, I think it's out today, Saturday, where you said, if Paul Allen had just taken the money he used to buy the art and put it in the stock market, he would have the results would have been higher, better, yeah, but it, better. Return. It wouldn't have been as beautiful, right? Of course, like, it's like don't buy it because it's an asset. Buy it because it's right, pretty. Right? Like, yeah, I mean, like he he clearly loved the art. You could see throughout the collection how much he loved these paintings, and. It's really hard to look at your S&P 500 index fund and go, ooh, I really love my index fund. You know, Wait. like, you don't get the same satisfaction from owning stocks that you do get from, from owning mean... art. How can you tell someone loves their art collection by looking at their art? Because there were these wonderful sort of cross themes. If you look at, for instance, there was this amazing George O'Keefe landscape, and you you know, I can just imagine him hanging it next to that Cezanne, and they, you know, they did look very similar. There did actually seem to be a similar color palette. Yeah, similar color palette. Like, you could see themes running through it, and, like, you could... He wasn't really into, sort of, conceptualism, right? Like, he bought beautiful objects, and much of... impressionist. Much of what the art world has done in recent years has really moved into, kind of, much more conceptual art, and he's like, I have no interest in that. What I just want to do is buy the most beautiful objects that money can buy. And that's exactly what he did. And it was, that's clearly like the mood right now. People are like, oh my God, look at this Signac, look at this Monet, look at this Cezanne, look at this Freud. And they're like, these are gorgeous, gorgeous paintings and we're willing to pay enormous. He had a Botticelli for fuck's sake. Wow. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Yeah. This is a rare moment where I get to vaguely utilize my art history Concentration. <laughs> it was a very, minor. it was a very good Botticelli too, and it sold for like forty-two million dollars. Yeah, all the artists I've heard of, and I don't have an art history minor, any 
anything. I mean, I haven't done anything with it for 25 years, so we're good. Okay. But yeah, I've, I've actually heard of the artists. And like when I looked at the pictures of the paintings, I was like, oh, these are nice, which usually does not happen yeah. when and I hear about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was going back and forth <laughs> with my copy editor, Axios. She was like, oh my God, did you see that Wayne Tebow thing of sardines? I'm like, oh my God, it was so beautiful. Oh, it's nice. It's yeah. an uplifting story. It's nice yeah. Copy editor, too. Okay. So invest in art because it's nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go out, buy beautiful things. But this is I, like invest in housing because you need something to live in. Yes. Well, not. like, it, no, if, if that's not even an investment. That's just covering your natural housing short like yeah. we are all bought short born short housing and we need to cover no one is born short art you know we just buy we go long art because we love it and i can just tell you as someone who's that been is buying... how i talk at my dinner table <laughs> i was born short housing <laughs> i love you felix <laughs> but yeah like you go you go long art because you love it and you live with it and it makes you very happy every day is this because you're married to an artist is that no. the ultimate going long on art? Yeah. No, I, I will. I will. I will tell you that my wife. You know, we we collect art together and we make decisions together. But in terms of just living with the art and showing it and that kind of stuff, probably that leans more towards me than towards her. Huh. Interesting. There you go. Buy up, Slate Plus listeners. Buy Slate Plus. Bye. 